Views expressed are not endorsed by the United States Department of Defense or its components. Welcome back to the Flyover Podcast as part of USAFA Aviation. Today is episode 12, and we are privileged to have Major Dominic Voodoo Collins. He is currently the Air Officer Commanding for Cadet Squadron 16 at the United States Air Force Academy. In this role, he is responsible for developing future officers of the United States Air Force. Major Collins received his commission from the United States Air Force Academy in 2011. He attended pilot training at Columbus Air Force Base, Missouri. After undergraduate pilot training, he transitioned to the F-16 multi-role fighter with various assignments throughout the United States, the Republic of Korea, and Germany, including one operational tour in the F-16 where he deployed in support of Operation Freedom Sentinel. Major Collins served as the Chief of Standards and Evaluations and Lead Evaluator Pilot, 52nd Operations Group, Spangdahlem Air Force Base, Germany. Prior to his current role, he served as the Chief of Wing Plans and Programs, responsible for dozens of key wing programs and ACE. He is, the senior, he is a senior pilot with more than 1,200 flying hours, including more than 168 combat hours. Sir, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So I guess we'll just kind of hop straight into like your flying crew. So you're an F-16 driver. And so first, kind of just like walk me through, like what are the advantages of the F-16 compared to other fourth gen fighters? Compared to other fortune fighters. So we're looking at Sea Model, Eagle, uh, as far as the Strike Eagle, and then you have the Viper, obviously, and then the A 10. They all do their own specific thing. I would say when you look at, we're divesting the Sea Model. So when you look at the last three, so the Strike, the Viper, and the Hog, the Viper, as far as air to air, like maneuverability, those type of things, when you're looking at specifically fortune platforms, probably the best at air-to-air type of dogfighting out of those three platforms to be very specific because I'm not going to bring in the Raptor into that conversation. That's a different ball game, But that's one of his advantages. And the other advantage is that you can just keep adding stuff to it. I wouldn't say that's like that's all the Fortune platforms, but the Viper, even though it's built in the 80s, you know, they just keep 70s, 80s, they just keep adding stuff to it, like new avionics, new radars, new weapons, those type of things, which makes it very versatile because as the modern fight evolves you need to be able to adapt and not just build a new plane every single time. The Viper just allows you to just keep bolting stuff onto it. Like, oh, the radar's not very good anymore. Let's get a new one. Like, oh, the ECM suite, the electronic countermeasure suite's not very good. Let's try to put a new one in. So it's just versatile in the sense of, hey, it's combat proven, it's very maneuverable, and then you can just keep adding stuff to it. So you're like, oh, we need to fix that. We need to be more capable here. Let's put something onto the jet. And that's what the Viper kind of brings to the fight as well as numbers. So so are there really any advantages if we look at fifth gen, like if we compare the F-16 to the F-35, the F-22, if any, what are those advantages that the F-16 has? Uh, over the F-35 and the Raptor, I would say numbers and cost, right? It's just efficient. You can, you can, the Viper's already built. We've already paid for it. Now we're just adding stuff to it versus the fifth gen expensive, LO paint, all of those type of things. You're just going to have a hard time getting the budget to buy more and more of those numbers. So what the Viper's bringing right now is a force multiplier. It's just another platform that can go into the fight where you definitely need, need fifth gen. You need that stealth. You need that LO. We didn't buy it for no reason, but you still need numbers and you don't want to spend a lot of money on newer and newer platforms when you can just keep fixing one to keep augmenting the force, if that would make sense. Yeah, okay, so to kind of follow up on that, I'm just curious, so kind of to bring it back to the fourth gen argument or discussion, so what's your thoughts on the uh, 15EX and its relation going forward with the 16? Yeah, so the EX, like it's kind of the same concept, right? We have a proven platform, let's update the avionics, let's update the weapons, let's give it some other characteristics, and then, yeah, and it's 
it's a for like we need more platforms. We can't just keep buying Raptor. It's expensive. We can't buy a, a million F thirty fives. But hey, we have a tried and true platform design. Let's just update it, modernize it, and then add it to the fight. So what you're looking at really is cost. Like hmm. if we could have a bajillion Raptor and a bajillion F thirty fives, that'd be awesome. But that's not the reality of a budget. So like let's see what we can do with stuff that we already have to make it legitimate in a future fight without spending the huge paycheck on it or the huge budget on it. And so how do those platforms do like integrating and talking to each other? They do good. So I guess the thing, like when we're looking at the future fight, everything needs to be interoperable needs to connect. We need to be able to like leverage the fifth gen capabilities with also bringing the numbers that the fortune has. So interoperability wise, very interoperable. And that's what makes us a lethal force is the interoperability, not only between platforms and in like your own platform, inner platform, also fifth gen, all those things fighting together as one fight. And that's what fortune brings. You got fifth gen capabilities helping out fortune things that we're not as good at. And then you work together to figure out who can do what best and then support each other. That's awesome. And so speaking of like working together, right? How did you guys, or how was your time working with other forces, you know, deploying and all that? Yeah. Uh, So obviously we have like the, the culmination exercise, right? When you go to red flag, and that's where you like bring all that day-to-day training that you do in the squadron. So mainly, like if I was in a Viper squadron, I'm gonna be fine with other Vipers. We're gonna do being mis- like piecemeal mission sets where we're doing like a mission, but we don't have the whole force with us. And then you go to red flag, and then you're like, man, we're not very good at this. And somebody else is like, yeah, we're really good at this. Like, help, we'll help you with this if you can help us with this. And then that's where you see all that training and all that. Like, I don't know, it's just crazy to just like see this group of fighter pilots come in, fighters joint special operators, uh, heavy pilots, and everyone just brings their own thing to the table. And then you take this like very complex mission set and everyone's like, yeah, we can do this. And everyone just works together and brings what they bring from their platform and their community to the fight. And then you go out there and try the best you can to win. It's awesome. Yeah. So that's like probably the more beneficial is like the day-to-day training is awesome. But when you go and like bring the whole force together and you're like, oh shoot, this is pretty impressive. Like 80 plus aircraft flying together. And everyone's working as a team and the plan works and everyone's sinking it's money so um to kind of talk a little bit about the joint force and even the air force in general when we talk about fifth gen communication systems and but then we go back to fourth gen which correct me if i'm wrong is still on link, link 16. yeah okay so how are those two communication systems going to mesh and is there any um future in which link 16 would go away and the F-16, the 15, the F-16, the F-15EX all go on to like a fifth gen communication system? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it comes down to money. Like Link 16 will be around for at least the foreseeable future. It works well. Uh, now the question is, how do you have those platforms communicate? Like if you have a, a more advanced system, how do you communicate with the old system? Uh, staying to like what we kind of can talk about in the room, like Link 16 is working, but we're always trying to make it better. And that's the thing, like Link 16 is just a, transmitting device transmitting system you just keep updating it to make it more robust and like a peer-to-peer type of adversary conflict Mm. and so the f-16 it's a very you know multi-role platform you know you can hit the ground you can hit the air what's it like trying to juggle like all those roles yeah master of all trades jack or jack of all trades master of none so you're just constantly maintaining trying to maintain a high level of proficiency in each but there's a cost right you're going to focus on one section for a little bit so what the Air Force kind of does is, like, if I go to a unit, like, I'm in Korea, I'm going to focus on really bombing strike-type of missions. And then you have another Viper unit that's going to focus on maybe C. It's a suppression of enemy air defenses. 
So it's tough to balance them all. It's a lot of fun, though, because you get to do a ball. So one day you're doing BFM, maybe you do that for a month. The next day you're doing some air-to-air stuff. So you get the, the whole spectrum of missions. Will I ever be as good at air-to-air as a Raptor or a C-model that just does air-to-air? Probably not, because that's, that, that's their bread and butter. That's all they do. But that Viper just, like, give us a task, and we probably have the capability to do it. Um, maybe not as specifically well as somebody that just does, like, no one's going to say an F-16 is better at cast than A-10. There's mm-hmm. A, the platform's better at it, and then they train specifically to it. So it comes at a little bit of cost to do all of them, but what it brings to the, the fight is, like, hey, we need somebody to do this. Well, we don't have anyone specifically designed to do it, but we know the Vipers can do it. So Vipers, can you help us out on this? Like, yeah. So we can do air-to-air. Maybe we can do some bombing. Maybe we do both. So we're constantly, we're just like that. Like if you look at a mission plan, we need somebody to do all of this stuff. Like Viper guys, can you do this? Yes. Yeah, we've got that. And we go out there and try our best at it. It's awesome. So what did your day-to-day um, when you were deployed in um, support of Operations Freedom Sentinel shape? Like, what, what did the day-to-day look like, and how did it shape your view on the Air Force? Yeah, I think it's, like, being deployed is kind of the coolest thing because th- there's no distractions. Like, ever, like you've trained your whole career toward that one point of showing up and making sure you're as good as you can be to support the dudes on the ground. And then everyone becomes singularly focused. There's no distractions. There's no, like... I got to go home and like, yeah, we like you miss your family, but you don't have the distraction from the mission. Everyone's just like, and everyone wants to do it well. So it's like cool when you take off, you like, luckily our commander built a really good relationship with the spec ops teams down in Afghanistan into that interoperability piece that comes down to like some of the stuff that we talk about the academy, right? Personal relationships, trust, those type of things. And then you go out and then there's nothing like, it's, I mean, it's terrible. They're, like, people are getting shot at the ground, but they call and they're like, hey, we need something. And you go deliver the ordinance, and then you hear their voice calm on the radio because you've taken care of that problem for them so they can continue doing their job. But I think it's just cool because everyone's single-focused. Like, everyone's just, like, razor-focused on doing the mission well. So, and it's, like, not just, like, the operation side of the house. It's, like, everyone. Like, you call, you need something. People, like, if it's for the mission, it doesn't matter what those people are doing. They're going to stop what they're doing to go get that done. Uh, all the way from maintenance to the support folks over at the mission support side of the house. Everyone's just focused on taking care of the mission. And uh, it's just kind of cool to see that kind of singular focus from a whole group, diverse backgrounds as far as like operations, support, those type of things. Everyone's just, everyone's just focused on one thing. I remember maintenance one time. We call, <laughs> we had fantastic maintenance in the, the Tigers. And uh, they call, like we had a guy go out and he goes and he, he goes Winchester. He drops everything. Uh, and he comes back and we go, Hey, they need more bombs. And, uh, maintenance is like, yeah, we got it. He went and used the bathroom. By the time he got back to the jet, there's a porta potty on the flight line. And he didn't go like a mile away. He just went to the porta potty, came back. They were already loading up his jet, gassing it up. And he was back, literally went to the fight, came back, landed, used the bathroom, got back to his jet and was cranked and took back off. Like that's ridiculous. Like the amount of hustle that maintenance put in. There was nothing like, oh, we got other things going on. Like, we got to get this done because the guys on the ground need it. That singular focus to support the supported asset, in this case, ground forces. I don't know. It's just like, it was awesome. And like, sometimes you hear people like, oh, you have to deploy. It's like, it does, it's terrible having to leave your family for a period of time. But like, to see what the Air Force is capable of when everyone works as a team towards one goal, you won't see anything like it ever. It's impressive. That's awesome. I mean, so... You you spent a lot of time as a stand eval pilot, right? Mm-hmm. And so, do you have any uh, stories, or what was your time like doing that stand eval? So, 
state of how is anything like admin to admin stuff like if we're not flying and we're not like particularly happy about anything um so state of how the thing it's like unique is like the it's almost constant in the fighter community like everyone's always constantly trying to be the best they can and or always getting feed like getting feedback to be best uh the best they can every day we don't waste taxpayer money if we go out and fly we're going to debrief it until we figure out what's wrong what we can do better state of how primarily kind of like an admin job as far as taking care of like the formates so like the things that we need need to track check rides and then occasionally going out to like uh qc um flying performance so you go out and do somebody's check ride and see if they're good they're up to snuff they meet all the requirements and honestly it's just like no surprise like no one really did bad on check rides because mm-hmm. everyone trained every day to be the best they could so check ride day was like it's stressful as a pilot, but it's like an evaluator. It's almost a non-event, very minor things because people are always on their game. You're not like dealing with somebody that's like completely incapable of flying the aircraft. And what's that debrief process like in a 16 squadron? Yeah, so we go out anywhere from BFM, so that's dogfighting, which you think about when you see like Top Gun, like dogfighting kind of stuff, all the way to like suppression of enemy air defense mission, which I would consider like the F-16's more complex mission set as far as planning and execution. You go out with objectives. So you go, all right, here we go. Here's our list of objectives that we have for the day. So and it usually starts with the commander's intent. Like, what does the commander want us to do? We make that up for ourselves. Like, hey, the commander wants us to do this. They're usually pretty lofty. And then we break those down into sub-objectives. All right, so commander wants us to destroy all these priority one targets. All right, that means that we can't lose more than this many strikers. That means we have to have, you know, X amount of bombs on target, those type of things. We come back, so you fly flying at 500 miles an hour sometimes you have a good recollection of what happened and what went wrong and sometimes you're like i have no idea like we got to go figure it out so all the pilots come back in we pull up our tapes so basically think like a like a cd that records your flight and like your hud tape so like your actual heads up display your two radar screens and it's paired with like a live tracking of where you were flying you come back initially and just validate one of the objectives did we have 100 percent valid weapons did we drop our bombs on the right targets those type of things take that takes about 30 to 40 minutes depending go into a mass debrief so now we play like all the flying lines so it looks like um what's a good video game for it i don't know it just looks like a screen that shows exactly where every plane is and has little trails so you can see where everyone flew during that period of time and then we basically go by and call our shots like who's shooting what who's dropping what bomb and you stop and then the goal is at the end of that you should have big picture things like dude somebody got shot here and like why question mark right big picture items that's what we do in the the mass debrief we just go find big picture things that we should take back to the the debrief with the flight we take that data and we then we go and deep dive we look at all the tactics we look at those specific things that like hey why did number two die today and we break that down we go back in time we listen to all the calm we watch all the tapes and we try to find that disconnect of what maybe happened Maybe completely unavoidable, might have been an execution mistake uh, that caused that death. And we debriefed that like, all right, these things contributed to number two's uh, getting shot today. All right, what's our what's the primary contributing factor? What was the biggest thing that we could take away that would have prevented this from happening? Here's our fix for next time. And everyone in the room is leaving with, all right, in that situation, that's what happened. These are things that could contribute to it. And then most importantly, this is what you do next sortie to make sure you don't do it again. So that's the debrief process. Uh, usually over a beer, always with popcorn. Uh, we sit there and we're like, for a short debrief, could be like an hour. I've seen them go up to like five or six. 
depending on how bad or good the sortie went, it could be really slow or it could be a very long debrief. Because, right, we want to, like, we're simulating combat. We don't want these things to happen in combat because that's what the taxpayers are expecting us to do, go out and win. So why didn't we win? Here's what we're going to fix for next time, and hopefully you see improvement. Most, uh, all the good pilots have a notebook, and they keep track of, like, all the unclassed data of, like, hey, all right, on BFM2 today I did this thing. This is what I should fix for next time. So then the next time you fly that sword, you open your notebook. I'm like, okay. These are the things I screwed up next time. So if I take that forward, I should do better. Awesome. Yeah. It's quite the process. <laughs> yeah. What's the longest debrief you've ever been in? Eight, eight hours. It's a long day. Yeah. We've, uh, the community has gone multiple ways with that. Um, so eight hours is too long, right? We call it time of useful consciousness. There's only so long I can sit and watch a screen and talk before I'm like not really learning anything anymore. So eight hours, I'd say it was probably like a, timeline bust like there's that's no reason you should talk for that long so now we've gone to like more deliberate when you go to that mass brief you come back with like three or four things and then you dig only into those things versus like going watching because if you watch an 30 minute vol so vulnerability period we just call them vols if you watch it and look for every detail you could turn a 30 minute period of time into like an hour and a half or two hours of just watching tape so now the instructor core as like an IP, we're watching when people are going through the upgrades, like, hey, are you like going to the mass debrief and pulling out the big takeaways that we need to do? And then going to the the debrief and being efficient with people's time. So only looking at exactly what we need to look at. And then other things can just be side notes as you're watching the tapes, like, okay. And as a good pilot, you should always be watching your tapes to make sure like, all right, they didn't catch that, but I've, I screwed that one up. So uh, they should honestly be like no more than about two to three hours depending on the mission set. And is it the same process while you're out in the field? Uh, uh, so for close air support, uh, when I was in Afghanistan, it was much shorter, right? So uh, mainly because the, the mission's not as fast paced, so you can really remember, uh, you can take notes a little bit better of like, hey, these are the things we should talk about when we get back. If there was a drop, if you actually drop weapons in combat, then you would watch from the nine line delivery. So when the, like, the call for fires was given or clearance to drop, all the way to execution plus a little bit more. And then you're just making sure that execution timeline went well. And then the drop was valid and on the right target. So those are actually shorter debriefs. Okay. But we're doing casts, low threat casts, not yeah. very long debrief. So you've, you've been uh, quite a few places so far. Yeah. So, so far, what is your, what has been your favorite assignment? Favorite assignment was definitely Spangdalem, Germany. That uh, it's like hands down. One, so we talked about red flag. That's like the U.S. version. When you're at Spangdahl, like, and occasionally we have NATO units or just, like, allied units come out to red flag. But, like, when you're in Germany, you just go to all their exercises, which gives you the opportunity to fly with NATO partners who are absolutely brilliant pilots in cool places. So I uh, went to Portugal, did their exercise. Went to the Netherlands, did their exercise. Got to go to Blue Flag in Israel, do their exercise. So just, like... You're doing the same thing like red flag, same level of execution, really high level execution, high level mission planning, really complex mission sets, but like you're in like Portugal or yeah. you're in Israel. So it's like, it's awesome. And do you think you picked up any lessons from those guys? Uh, A, like like the those exercises are important, right? Like we saw how fast, like we went from a pretty quiet European front to like now there's a, a war with Russia and Ukraine going on. So like the importance of, continuing the practice together 
make sure interoperability exists and making sure we have those relationships, which are key. Because, right, like if we do a, like a NATO war and like NATO's involved, like these aren't just people you're flying with for training. These are the people you're going to be flying with in combat. So building those relationships, making sure the interoperability is there from like a technical standpoint. So everything's working, all the systems like talk together. Um, yeah. And then they were like, they were like showed us a lot of times, like just being efficient with time. Like Europeans are like very efficient with time. Like only what we need to do to get the job done. And so we can go like live a good life, go home, do those type of things. Um, that was the big thing from NATO is just like, a, it, it exists and it's a strong relationship and then B, the importance of like getting out there and doing those exercises um, was huge. Yeah. So uh, you, you kind of piqued my interest um, bringing up Ukraine right now. Yeah. Um, so I'm not sure how far you want to go into this, if at all. But um, when we talk about um, allies sending F-16s possibly to Ukraine, um, how much how big of a game changer do you think that is for Ukraine? Um, and yeah. I mean, if they're saying they need it, they probably need it, like, right? Like, they have an older fleet of Russian-style aircraft. Uh, so, yeah, and like we said, the fortune, like, you can just strap things on there. So, like, if they need weapons and they, like, the U.S. government says that, like, you, you need it, they can just bolt them on, and it's pretty easy to, like, basically very short training. Like, all right, this is the new weapon. This is how you use it. A couple, couple days of flying with it and then go out and execute. Um, so, yeah, if... If the U.S. government says they need it and they say they need it, then it's probably going to help them uh, a good bit. Now you just have to get – now you're looking at numbers, right? Now are you going to have enough numbers to support uh, their needs? Like, I mean, you got a pretty long front line there on the south border of Ukraine, southeast border of Ukraine, pretty long. Surface-to-air missiles, those type of things. I don't think anyone can concretely say how much effect it's going to have for them, but I think the Ukrainians have shown that they don't waste opportunity. If you give them a weapon system, they're going to use it, and they're going to use it pretty well. So, And we've had a lasting relationship with the Ukrainians flying with, I think it was a C-model unit. Uh, there was a relationship there. They've shown they're capable pilots already. Uh, now you give them a new platform, maybe numbers, maybe some more longer-range weapons that help strike behind those front lines. And then everyone knows air superiority, and being able to support troops on the ground with weapons from the air is huge. So if I give them that capability, then it could make a difference. But I don't think anyone can really say, like, I gave you five Vipers. We should see this type of progress because the enemy also gets a vote and how useful that tool is going to be. Yeah. And so do you think their pilots would be able to adapt? You said that Russian-style aircraft to an F-16? I, yeah. They, yeah. They're, they're fighter pilots. You put them in a plane, they're going to figure it out. The F-16 also is like one of the first platforms that had a lot of HOTAS, so hands-on throttle and stick. So the plane is actually much more user-friendly as far as like, think video games, right? Like, okay. Like PlayStation versus like playing on like, I don't know, something else, like an old Nintendo 64. Like, you know how fast you all like pick up like playing video games and like all those things? The Viper is basically like that. So yeah, once they learn out how it works, they get in some Sims, the actual interface of the F-16 is brilliant. It's genius. Like the hotas is really easy to use. It just takes practice, just like playing a video game. So if they are fighter pilots, which means they have a winning attitude, <laughs> they're going to figure out if you give them a chance to. It's awesome. So, so kind of transitioning a little bit to kind of like the future fight and the future of the Air Force. So what role does the F-16 play in the future fight, um, given the obsession with stealth these days? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we like kind of go back and like you just can't buy a million F-22s. You can't buy a million F-35s. What you're looking at the 
F-16 is how does it integrate into that fight? How do we, like, where does our piece of the puzzle fit? Because you just don't have the numbers. So the F-16 is going to be that puzzle piece that helps with numbers, brings missiles, uh, basically brings the munitions and the numbers to the fight versus relying solely on stealth. You just don't have the numbers to do it. So maybe not, we might not be like the forward leading edge of the fight, but we're going to be around back there supporting and giving, bringing those missiles and those numbers to the fight. So I think that's what you're really looking at. And to kind of go off that, so um, if the F-16 isn't the, the tip of the spear, per se, um, how is a predominant F-16 role being the suppression of enemy air defenses going to be transitioned into 5th gen? Yeah, that's a running, uh, that's a running like, infighting between the F-35 and the F-16. Obviously, F-16 is the seed platform. F-35 is obviously designed to do that capability. And honestly, probably a little bit better than the F-16. So there's like infighting between who's the real weasels and who's not. But yeah, I think when you look at the F-35 specifically and its capabilities, like you're going to see it pick up more of the seed role. Uh, Do I like to say that? No, nothing about me wants to say that. But it's just like when we like the F-4s used to be the original seed platform. Then you had the F-100 before that and F-105 helping. Everyone, everyone's always proud of what they did for the seed fight. But when you look specifically at the F-35, you're thinking seed might look a little bit different than what we're used to uh but it's 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 good at it and that's what it's there for so we might be bringing bombs numbers those type of things but when you look at who's like really doing the thing it's probably going to be your f-35 and so the f-16 is obviously i mean it's wicked good at dogfighting um with like the transition that the transition to beyond visual range do you see like that kind of going away at all or yeah uh, like there's a picture of a you all can't see it. There's a picture of an F four there, right? There was a time, right? We all everyone's like, oh yeah, BVR, BVR, BVR. If anyone looks back at the history of the F four, big radar, missiles, no gun. We're just gonna shoot them at range, right? And then we never have to go to a dogfight. And what did Vietnam show us, right? They they ended up going to dogfights with no gun, or the missiles didn't work when they needed them to work. So I think any. Anyone that says there's never going to be a dogfight anymore because we have, like, long-range missiles is just, like, blind to the facts. Like, there's just the fog of friction of war that, like, things aren't going to work or you're not going to be able to shoot everyone at range and you're going to end up at a merge. And that's where, like, that's why we don't stop practicing dogfighting. That's why the F-35 still has a cannon. Like, at some point, you're going to end up at a merge. And, like, you can't be blind to that fact. Should we have the technology, like, should we want to attrit at range? Yes, absolutely. That's the safest safest way to do it but the reality is like no one knows what the conflict's gonna look like and you're gonna gonna be ready that like yep 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 we shoot 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 oh we're at the merge switch dogfight time time to use the cannon if you need to use what missiles you got left but yeah i think if vietnam taught us anything about we want fighters that are maneuverable we want them to have a gun and we want them to be able to like be trained in it um so uh, yeah, you look at the F-35. Yeah, it's stealth. It's, it's awesome. But they still practice dogfighting because I think everyone admits that we're going to get a merge at some point. Mm. So so when we're talking about the F-35 dogfighting, we had a major harp and F-35 test pilot um, <laughs> on here. And so one of the, the questions we asked him was, there's this infamous arm, uh, infamous infamous article that Army guys always cite to me um, about how the F-16 beat the F-35 in a dogfight. And they use that as like, oh, the F thirty five is trash, which I don't agree with. But um, and they are, kind of argue how the F sixteen is just a superior fighter in dogfighting to the F thirty five. So obviously, 
a lot of that, the limitations on the F-35 was probably due to the development of stealth. It has a joint fighter, but as an F-16 driver, what's your view on that article? And um, if you got into a dogfight with F-35, how would you feel? Okay, uh, step one. Uh, how do I feel about the article? Yeah, like, yeah, it's not the world's greatest, like, dogfighter, but, like, you can't be good at, like, everything, right? But it's good at, it's real good at what it's supposed to be good at. Is it the world's greatest dogfighter? No, it's not. But it's got advanced sensors, stealth, all of those things. It's not a terrible dogfighter. It's not, like, a pile of trash out there, for sure. A clean F-16 versus an F-35, I'm probably going to win wholesale. <laughs> But the problem is I would have to get to the merch. <laughs> Chances of that fair fight completely even, probably fairly low. So, like, yeah, it's not a good dogfighter. I fought it. It's not it's not particularly good. But what it is good at is what it was designed for, and it is filthy at doing that. <laughs> so mm. the taxpayers did not waste their money. So as an F-16 um, pilot, too, um, how, how many years have you been in? 2011, so 12. 12 years? years? Yeah. So I don't know how, how much longer you're planning on staying in, but do you ever see a future where you transition to the F-35? Yeah, that's a good question. It's a cool platform. Um, now it's just looking at just like numbers, right? Do we need a, a lieutenant colonel type to go to the F-35 when we have all of our own uh, F-35 pilots that could fill those slots versus we need, still need to fill leadership or other roles in F-16? Uh, probably low chance at this point. Would it be opposed to it? No, it's a cool plane uh, for sure. Um, but uh, at this point, I'm like kind of, kind of like you build your own bias towards your own plane. Uh, so like, kind of partial to my my baby, the F-16, especially the Block 50. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I could, I guess, but I think the odds of it are low. So you mentioned, uh, you know, 12 years uh, that you've been in. Yeah. Um, how has the academy changed in the past 12 years? Would you say? How has the academy changed? Oof. Um. I feel like you all are just smarter than us. Like when I was here, I just feel like on a whole, just like the, the, the kids you see around here, like, uh, we got one in our squad. She was like yeah. doing space science. She's like, yeah, I'm changing like DNA for plants to grow plants in space. I'm like, what? <laughs> so I think, uh, in like intelligence, like, I feel like I don't, I think you just when you get old, but like, it feels like you all are just a, like, just really like academically, just like compared to us compared to the seventies, like, just like uh, way ahead of where we were. That doesn't mean we didn't have smart people. It just seems like on the whole, people are just doing some incredible things in the academic arena. Uh, they've made a lot of good changes for like balance of time and those type of things. As far as you guys have like Starbucks, like the $15 thing for Starbucks. <laughs> we did not get that. Uh, we used to have to march the math in the morning. So that was cold about this time of year. So we would march to breakfast. So that changed overall. Uh, I think you have more resources than we have. A lot more cool things like the multi-domain lab, uh, the clubs like the air combat club. They have their own setup down there. Um, the onset of like the space stuff and all those things being built. I think it just the academy is growing into the new areas uh, with good resources to do it. So I don't know. I think it's the biggest change as far as like the basics. Fairly similar. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, so obviously you went to the academy, yeah. but originally, um, obviously you, you came in on I-Day. So what made you join the Air Force and what, why do you want to come to the academy? Okay, yeah, that's a good question. So my dad's Air Force. He was not a pilot. He's an engineer, uh, so way smarter than I am. Uh, but I grew up on Air Force bases, and I just always remember watching, like, uh, so Eglin's always the one that comes to mind. 
uh, the F-15s taken off. So originally the two, the, they're F-35 squadrons now, but they were C-model squadrons. And just seeing them take off and full afterburner do unrestricted climbs, like, oh, that's cool, man. Really like that. As far as the Air Force Academy, I knew I wanted to fly. I didn't think I wanted to fly Vipers, but my mom found a letter in fourth grade that I wrote about me being like a like a somebody flying an F sixteen saving somebody. So I got like I didn't remember that, but apparently I wrote it. Uh, so I was like, oh cool, I want to fly planes for sure. My uncles went to the Air Force Academy, so ninety one grad and a seventy nine grad. Uh, and my dad goes, if you want to fly, the best chance you have to do that is at the Air Force Academy. And I was like, okay. And he goes, it's really hard. And I was like, bet, let's go. Let's go do it. So I came here to fly. Um, and I found kind of what I was looking for, like this, like just good people with like a challenging environment, but lots of opportunities. That's what I kind of stayed for. So, yeah, I think that's the biggest thing was I just really want to fly planes. I didn't know I want to fly. I switched back and forth. So I want to fly heavies at one point because uh, Kaz, the baseball coach, uh, he was my AOC's heavies. Um, Major Schottmeyer was one of my other AOC's. You never forget your AOC's name. Um, there are 17 pilots and I loved them. I thought they were the greatest. So I went to C7, like went kind of C-17s in my mind and eventually ended up on fighters through pilot training. But what brought me here was the opportunity to fly. So I was a glider IP. I uh, did the powered flight program. I soloed through that. So yeah. I think that's why I like basically came here was to fly and then all the opportunities like made it definitely worth it. And at what point during UPT did you say, you know, I want fighters? Oh yeah, that's a good point. Um, so we were going through and I decided in my brain, like I didn't, I was like, you know what? I'm not really sure, but I know if I do the best I can in pilot training, I work really hard. It'll leave all the doors open. So I was working really, really hard, and I got paired up in formation with one of my buddies, Trick Ortiz. Uh, he's a 16, he was a 16 pilot, now an F-35 pilot at Eglin, and we got to fly formation together. And he also works really hard in pilot training. And we were flying formation, and we were just, like, killing it as a team. So, like, the formation was tight, comms between us were tight, the IPs were having a good time back there because we weren't being stupid in the front. And I was like, wow, this is awesome. Like, just like that like working as a team in two different planes and having it go really well. You're like, this is fun. And just like flying with somebody that wants to do well as well, being part of that type of team. I was like, this is awesome. And then I got switched uh, formation partners and the other person didn't work as hard, wasn't as dedicated to it. And didn't like, basically we got switched with like, we have to keep our eyes on this person. So you do your thing. We're going to basically focus on this student. I was like, all right, I got it. But it wasn't as fun because the person that hadn't put in the work wasn't as ready to go do it. And I was like, huh, do I want to fly with these type of people or the people that work really hard? Not to say that not a good pilot or anything, just like the people that are really driven to like fly really, really well. Top of the like knife edge type of flying. And I was like, huh, that's going to be in 38s. That's where there's like the people that are really driven. All of them want to go to 38s. And I was like, well, I want to go fly with those folks. Uh, So that's why I went 38s. And again, all caveats, right? doesn't mean bad pilots go fly heavies. It was just like, I just noticed the trend with the people trying to go fighters and T-38s. I was like, they're kind of like me, and they're going to push me to be better, so I'm going to go fly with them. And then I went all the way to 38s, and I was like, faster jet, still doing formation, doing the same stuff. And I was like, as I met with the instructors and talked to them that had fighter experience, I was like, it sounds like a challenging life, but it also sounds really cool, and I want to go do that. So that's how I ended up in fighters. Mm. And so speaking of flying with, like, cool people – you know, you're in a combat situation, 2v2. Who do you want as your wingman? Ooh. Honestly, I'd take any of my wingmen. 
they're all good. Like if we did our job right, I'll take them all. Are we talking like famous people? Or, do we or just, no, just, just any, anyone, anyone you anyone. know, anyone you flew with, anyone you want to shout I'll out? Go with, I would go with Trick, Trick Ortiz. I would definitely go fly with him. But like, the, like you just go back, we go back ways. He's a funny dude, uh, but he's a good pilot. Uh, he probably brings F-35, bring the Viper. But yeah, I'd go fly with him any day, any situation. We'd do good. It's awesome. So, um, so obviously started off at T6s, transitioned to the T38s, then ultimately um, ended up with the F-16. So what was the transition like from each plane and how are they different and how are they similar? Okay, yeah. T6, awesome plane, awesome plane. It turns, like it feels like in the pattern you're like barrel racing because it just turns so tight in the pattern. So a lot of people like the bane of flyers after you get older is the patterns, but the T6 was always fun. 200-ish knots. Uh, as you're flying around, so you get used to that speed. The biggest thing about going to um, T-38, that transition was the speed difference. I mean, the plane landed faster, it took off faster, and then when you were cruising, you got used to like 200 knots. So imagine you're driving 60 miles an hour down the highway. All your planning is based on that speed. Like, oh, I need to get over at this point because I'm going this fast to make that exit. So you have that planning factor, and imagine you're driving on the highway going 200 miles an hour, and you're trying to use that planning factor you're going to miss that exit every time because you're just behind so the biggest thing about transitioning to 38 was learning how to get further and further in front of the jet because you're going that much faster so t6 you're cruising at 200 t38 typically 300 to 400 knots so you just need to get ahead of the jet further so it pushes you to like really know how to fly well so you can like free up your brain to go what do i need to do next to be ready as you go to f16s uh, the biggest, like the plane's faster, but your planning factor generally works, right? From the 38 to the F-16. Uh, the thing is now you have to learn how to like use your brain to like not just get ahead of the jet and like normal task, like admin tasks, like formation, like checklist, those type of things. It's like, yeah, you need to do all that stuff. And you also need to fight and shoot the right person, lock the right guy, do the right techniques or whatever for the weapons. So now you're just adding that next complexity. So the 38 is designed to help bring you up to speed as far as how fast you like need to think and now you add the added complexity of like yeah dude that's just admin task that's just like going from point a to point b and landing we need you to learn how to um actually employ it tactically so that was the biggest transition but i'll never forget when i got to luke my dad and i were driving on base we drove all the way from columbus mississippi and uh he drove on the base and he's like, and they have the F-16 right in the front gate. Like there's like the the ramps right there. And he's like, I can't believe you're going to go fly that. And I was like, yeah, that's kind of crazy. This is wild. And then you'll do a couple rides uh, with two people. So just get used to the jet and then your first solo. It's crazy because the 38 and the T-6 are both designed to have another seat. The Viper, you get in there the first time you look back, you're like, oh, this is weird. There's just no other seat, just you. So that was the coolest thing in the world. I still remember I was like, sat in there and I was like there's no one else and you just like close the canopy and like there's no one no one but you to make sure you fly that jet well uh oh, she's great it's awesome man and how long like would you say before you felt just like totally comfortable like this is my jet uh I don't think hmm it's like a double-edged like like a double-edged sword you should never feel so comfortable in the jet that you get like lazy about it because as soon as you get lazy with a fighter it's going to kill you because it's just like it's a it's a dangerous business but as far as like full comfort i'd probably say when i was like like really like this is easy like this like i'm feeling comfortable in my brain 
probably like Korea. So after a full assignment of flying F-16s, it was like, yeah, I got it. Like, that's why like you feel like you're, um, you'll go on leave for like a couple days or something. You come back and you don't feel confused. I would say that ended at like Shaw, like, cause like it's all habit patterns. By the time I was ending Shaw, I had like really good habit patterns in the plane. And by the time I got to Korea, I felt like comfortable that like, there was like very few things that like could throw a wrench in me being able to fly the plane well. Mm. So you got any questions before we move on to the last one? Well, I actually do just have a quick question. So how did uh, how did Korea compare to Germany? You just mentioned it. Oh, Korea. Korea is different because Germany, you're like doing NATO presence. Like you're there for NATO. But when you go to Korea, the biggest thing is like, no, that's like, there's no, there's just an armistice. There's no like, there's no peace. That is an active like war zone. So like everyone's focused on. Uh, it's not an active war zone. I'm always trying to like watch what I say to make sure to like people don't get onto me. It's just like a it's a war that's at a steady state. Like no one's doing everything, but like it could something could go wrong at like any time. So when you go to Korea, you're always training to that mission set, and it's weird when you go up and like fly near the border and stuff. You're like no, there's like that's a demilitarized zone. Like machine guns, all of the whole thing. Like so when you're in Korea, that like that period of time was like very real from Shaw where you deploy. To, to the war zone in Korea, like it's just a flight up the road, and that's that's the dividing line between open and open conflict or not conflict. So very singular focus based on the mission versus where some bases are focused on training to get ready for the war. That base is just focused on being ready if the war breaks out again. Okay, it's awesome. So, ending question. It's okay. a little bit of a tradition. Now, I'll preface this with some, so the question is, what is the best aircraft in the Air Force and why? Now, before you answer, I'll say, some people stay loyal to their jets, but mm-hmm. others defect. Oh my so gosh, it's So the ball is in your court. All right. Favorite plane of all time is the P-51, no doubt. Favorite plane in active duty Air Force is obviously the F-16. Oh, she awesome. got good lines. She, she flights well, she's clean. It's gotta be a Block 50 though. To be specified, mm. not not anything else. Block fifty F sixteen U S Air Force, she's the best. You get her like completely clean, nothing on there. Cold day, throwing the th- throttle, slams you to the back of the seat, turns into a rocket ship. She'll give you nine Gs if you want nine Gs just like that. Yeah, no, there's no better jet. Mm. Well, and that is not debatable. Not debatable <laughs> at all. Not debatable. It is not debatable. I will say when people defect, they do defect to the F-16. So, oh, uh, yeah. Uh, F-35 or F-22 normally. That is true. Fair enough. Yeah. So, yeah, like, you want you like it's like when you get your favorite car, like like you know the people that have their car in the garage, it's like a classic. That like the Viper is always going to be like that's the car. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Yes, yeah. sir. Thanks for coming on the yeah, podcast. Uh, this has been the Flyover Podcast, episode twelve. Um, once again, these episodes are all on Spotify and Apple Podcasts with our clips on YouTube Shorts and Instagram Reels. We will catch you all in the next one.